to the Lord together. Our Father, we do glory in the fact that you indeed are the Ancient of Days. And so now we turn to you and your word to give us direction, to show us the path of eternal life, and to show us the path of peace. We ask that you'll reveal yourself to us, that you'll make known to us the power of your salvation, the majesty of your love for us, the greatness of knowing you. Make us like your servant Jesus, who was gentle and lowly in heart. And it's by his name that we pray, amen. The story of Corey and Betsy Ten Boom are some of the most harrowing stories that we have as believers, and it's a story that has bolstered the faith of many throughout the past 50 or 60 years. Corey and Betsy were from Holland, and they found themselves during World War II in the Nazi-run Ravenbrook concentration camp. And they ended up there because they had a heart for the Jewish people in Holland. And for several years, they would hide them in their homes and help them escape the Nazi terror. While they were there at Ravensbrück, they suffered abusive guards and they suffered atrocious conditions as they were captive for over 10 months. And they labored. They were workers. And so they labored with backbreaking work. In the work, it, it severely weakened them and fatigued them. And Corey tells the story of one point, her sister Betsy, she had grown so weak that she was working with a shovel, and it was all she could do to just move a pitiful amount of dirt. And a guard was watching and started laughing at her, and she didn't know what to do, so she started laughing back at him, and he was insulted, so he took her shovel from her, and he struck her in the chest. As the blood started seeping through her blouse, Corey herself grew enraged at the action, and with her own shovel, she went for the guard. But amazingly, Betsy, laying there on the ground, bleeding, stopped Corey, and she told her, Corey, don't look at it, meaning the wound on her chest. Look only at Jesus. Look only at Jesus. And it seems the more that the Nazis tried to crush Betsy Tim Boom, the more that she looked to Jesus and sought to exalt God. Betsy exemplified the path of the humble. And she enjoyed such a great peace with God that no trial or no travail of this life could cause her to stumble. Betsy's words, look only to Jesus, reminds us that it's the vision of God that will cultivate a humble spirit in us. Our text today, Isaiah chapter 57, if you want to turn there, we'll look at verses 14 to 21, is a text that supplies one such life-giving and humbling vision of God. This text exalts the majesty of our Lord, Yahweh, and it also celebrates His joy and dwelling with the humble and contrite in spirit. The prophecy of Isaiah was written to 8th century Judah in the midst of a political and religious crisis. 
Assyrian power was growing and threatening their security and stability. And so God's people, they sought security instead of in Yahweh. They sought security in the gods of the nations. And they sought security in forbidden alliances like with the nation of Egypt. And it seems that the people of God there in Judah had lost their vision of God. Idolatry and sexual immorality and violence and oppression reigned supreme. In 57 verse 1, if you take your eyes to the top of the chapter, reports that the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. And verse 4 reports that the righteous were even mocked. And so in verse 11, Yahweh replies to them in anger, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied? And did not remember me. The people had forgotten Yahweh. And as a result, Isaiah predicted that Yahweh would judge his people. And that he would send them out of the land of Canaan and exile them to Babylon. But Yahweh's judgment would not be the last word. An offer of mercy is always the last word from Yahweh, and it's an offer of mercy that we get in our text in Isaiah 57, 14 and following. And this passage communicates God's heart to be with his people if they will just humble themselves and submit themselves to him. Then God will come and dwell with the humble. Let's begin in verses 14 and 15 where we read of the way of the Holy One. This is what the word of the Lord says. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. This idea of the way is an oft-repeated theme throughout the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah 35 verse 8 talks about the way of holiness, predicting a time of after the exile, that this way will be made to restore relationship between Yahweh and his people. And the people will be able to come and to stream into Zion to sit under the teaching and leadership of Yahweh. And then in Isaiah 40, verse 3, another text mentions this way. And in that text, it's called the way of the Lord. And it's called a, a highway for our God. That text is often taught as... Uh, showing a highway for the people to return from exile. But actually what it's showing is it's a way for God to return to the people, for God to dwell with them once again. And then here in our text in 5714, we have this picture of a highway that's being built upwards, almost like it's a large siege ramp. It says build up, build up. So one imagines a, a large land bridge, and it, it not only spans the geographical divide between Babylon and Jerusalem, but this is a, a metaphorical land bridge that is going to span the divide between Yahweh and his people because of their sin. And so all obstacles are going to be removed. And it's, this land bridge is granting this certainty that Israel will once again be, as it says, my people. They will again belong to Yahweh. And so Yahweh, after his judgment, he's promising a word of mercy. And he's promising to deliver his people in a second great exodus. Just as he led them through the Red Sea out of Egypt, now he will lead them out of Babylon and lead them back to themselves, back to Jerusalem. But more than that, he's not going to lead them out of slavery to Babylon. 
but he's going to lead them out of slavery to their sin. When the Transcontinental Railroad opened in 1869, it spanned 1,912 miles, and it really united a divided country after the Civil War, joining it from coast to coast. Remarkably, it went straight across the Sierra Nevada Mountains, which stretched seven or 8,000 feet. And one of the most remarkable things about the way the Transcontinental Railroad was constructed is that they took careful effort to make sure that the grade of the railroad was smooth and that the ascent and descent was never too high or too low. They kept the grade at no more than two and a half percent rising or lowing or lowering. And so if you read about the building of the railroad, you'll read a lot about them raising the dirt just a little bit or lowering the dirt just a little bit. And then when they crossed things like the Sierra Nevada, they, they built tunnels and they built these huge spans of bridges and they did everything that they could foot by foot to remove every obstacle and to make sure that there was a smooth and reliable way through the Sierra Nevada. In like fashion, Yahweh is building a smooth and reliable way to return to his people. And in the flow of Isaiah's thought, Isaiah 57 springs from the realities that Jonathan read for us earlier in Isaiah 52 and 53. There in Isaiah 53 verse 5, it speaks of the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. It's by the work of the servant that God's wrath is propitiated. And we know this servant to be Jesus, who the New Testament tells us opened a way in the temple through the veil and opened a way for God to once again come and dwell with men. Is it any wonder that Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life? And is it any wonder that early Christians, the book of Acts reports, called themselves the way. And so this metaphor of a highway, it communicates Yahweh's fierce commitment and his loyalty to his people. And this is a, a commitment and a steadfast love that has burned strong for millennia. And it's one that continues today. If you are straying from the Lord, here is a picture of God's burning heart to bring you to himself. Will you humble yourself and return to the Lord today? Let's transition from the way of the Holy One in verses 14 to the dwelling of the Holy One in verse 15. Look at the text with me. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So here we have one of the most beautiful contrasts of scriptures where we learn of God's transcendent majesty above all. But we also read of his intimate presence with the crushed and with the broken. And in some sense, these verses summarize the story of redemption into one breathtaking sentence. 
Notice the four in verse 15. This is a, an explanatory. It's explaining how can a way be established between the holy God and this sinful, re wicked, rebellious people. Well, the text looks to the character of Yahweh to answer that question. And so the Lord begins by telling us about himself. And it says that he is the one. This word one should remind us of Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Where Moses proclaimed, hear O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. There is no other. God is all. He is above all. He is separate from all. He is the only God. No one or no thing competes with him in the universe. And then it says that he is high. And he's lifted up, communicating the beautiful transcendence of God. These words tell us that in comparison to everything else, in relation to everything else, he is high and he is lifted up. This language may remind us of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah and his calling was called to witness the glorious exaltation of Yahweh. And it's there that he reports he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah himself saw that there is nothing more exalted or more worthy or more beautiful in the universe than our God. Then there's this third descriptor in verse 15. It says Yahweh is the one who inhabits eternity. You could render this something like he is the dweller forever. The dweller forever. God has always been, and he always will be. And for Israel, this is important because he's never going to give up. And he's always ongoing with an ever-constant supply of life and mercy and joy. He's always offering Israel the opportunity to be satisfied in him. They look to themselves, and they look to the nations and to the gods of Canaan to provide for themselves stability. But God's saying... I'm forever. I am the stable one. In fact, Isaiah 33, verse 6. Go look at that verse after the sermon. It talks about how Yahweh, he tells his people, will be the stability of your times. There is only one lasting source of stability in this universe. It's Yahweh, the one who dwells forever. And he is ever seeking to dwell with his people. And then Isaiah tells us of Yahweh's name. He tells us his name is holy. This word holy, it speaks of the sheer otherness of our Lord. And it speaks of his moral purity. And it, it speaks of his, just his absolute goodness of nature. All that he is, all of his thoughts, all of his actions, all of his being is morally pure and perfect and good. Once again, Isaiah witnessed the transcendent holiness of the Lord in his vision. When he saw the Lord high and lifted up, it says that he heard the seraphim who were uh, flying beside the throne of Yahweh. And they cried out back and forth to one another antiphonally. They cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah saw this exalted glory of God in his grand holiness. And how did he respond? 
He cried out, I'm undone. He, he seems to have been so overwhelmed by his vision of God and overcome by the exalted magnificence of our God that he, he lost the ability to even speak. He says, my lips are sinful. I can't even speak before you because you're so holy and perfect. And here, Isaiah begins to show us that there's no greater antidote for pride than to have a clear vision of God. Like Israel, we too can let our vision of God become blurred by our busyness, become blurred by our own ambitions and our own anxiety to establish stability for ourselves and our stooping to the cheap pleasures of this life and our love for this world. Our idolatrous distractions often cause us to have not a great vision of God, but instead have little thoughts about God. And so the only antidote is for us to do as Isaiah has told us, to look to God and to find us captivated by his greatness and captivated by his goodness, to let him, as we just sang, let him be the treasure of our hearts. Here's a paraphrase of how Packer has tried to put the glory of God in what he offers us. Packer says he's unlimited in his presence in the world. He's unlimited in his knowledge of us. And he's unlimited in his power to help us. And Packer goes on, he has this beautiful line. He says he's always with us. And his eye is always upon us. I'd encourage you to take some time this week and go and read and contemplate the glories that are exalted of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 40. It's this text that celebrates God's greatness, that he is high and lifted up. It talks of how the oceans themselves, that they fit into the hollow of his hand. He talks about the nation and the 8 billion people that are in the world and how they are just as nothing but dust on his scales. And then it says that he sits above the circle of the earth. You imagine the width of the orbit of the earth around the sun. And Isaiah says he sits above the circle of the earth. And so he, in his greatness, he dwarfs the world and its inhabitants. You see, when we get a right vision of God, when we begin to think rightly about God, that there's no one that compares with him. That there's nothing that is beautiful and as worthy and as treasured as he is. And that he is everlasting. When we think these thoughts and we get the right vision of God, well then we also start to get a right vision of ourselves. We start to realize that our own worth and our own priorities are never independent of him and who he is. And so we draw our worth from treasuring him and we submit all of our priorities to seeing him exalted and seeing his name praised here's all we have ever needed it's all we have ever wanted if god cannot satisfy you nothing will so i want to commend us all to renew our energies to pursue the lord to treasure him to wait on him to rejoice in Him, to serve Him, 
And when we have done all this and we have, as we sang, feasted on his goodness and on his grace, we will find ourselves satisfied in him. Let's look back at the text together at verse 15. And here, this is where verse 15 moves in this surprising direction and states this beautiful and breathtaking contrast. Yahweh says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Yahweh's transcendence, his exalted status, does not mean that he is separate from us in the physical realm. Instead, it's communicating his greatness over us, and most importantly, his greatness among us. Because he is transcendent, he is always available, and he is free of his own will, bound by nothing else, to be with us. And who does he make his home with? Well, the text says the one who is contrite and lowly of heart. This word contrite is a beautiful word here in this text. It, it, it literally could be translated dust or one who is crushed, crushed. So here it's saying that God Almighty dwells with those who are crushed by the brokenness and the sufferings and the trials of this life. And the word also describes those who are grieved and humbled and crushed by their own sin. As Jesus said, it's the poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom of God. Psalm 34, verse 18, it echoes the truth here. It says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed. That's the same word here. He saves the crushed in spirit. God comes to dwell with those who are humbled by their sin and repent. Then there's this second descriptor, lowly spirit which is communicating the idea of humility. God cannot live with those who try to exalt themselves and lift themselves up. The text makes clear, the Bible makes clear all over, God can share that glory with no other. And yet God is eager to dwell with those who recognize his ultimate worth and their absolute dependence on him. And here this text helps us see that the path to humility is not just self-abasement. The path to humility is treasuring God for who he is. And it says here that he will not only dwell, but he will also revive. This word just means to literally to give life to. And so those who have had the life smashed out of them, or those who are smashed by their sin and crushed and broken... God promises to restore and give life back. And notice where he's going to grant this life. He's going to grant it in the spirit and the heart. So God's going to instill new life into the inner man. This is regeneration, which later prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel will prophesy. And they prophesy how God's going to cleanse the hearts of his people of all unrighteousness and he's going to grant their hearts the ability to obey him and to remain humble before him. And so it's the repentant and the humbled heart that really is the essential mark of one who dwells with Yahweh. The prideful person, they, they lift themselves up and lift up their ways and in so doing, 
C.J. Mahaney argues they directly contend against Yahweh. They compete with him for glory. And so the question for all of us to ask is not whether we have pride, but it's where does it show itself and to what extent does it manifest itself? And this text helps us to see that the way to fight pride is by magnifying our vision of God. So we should all ask ourselves, are we growing in humility? Humility is the essence of godly virtue, and yet it can be a much neglected virtue in our lives. Think about Jesus who described himself in Matthew 11 verse 28 as gentle and lowly in heart. Pastor Jim read Philippians 2 to us in the New Testament reading and that text helps us to grasp the sheer abundance of Jesus's humility. It tells us that he emptied himself and that he took the form of a servant. And it's interesting in a parallel text to Isaiah 57, we have in Isaiah 52, speaking of the servant, who would be Jesus, reports that the servant was high and lifted up. And so Jesus found glory in the ultimate act of humility and self-giving. When he was lifted up on a cross for sins, he was giving and serving and being humble, but at the same time, God raised him from the dead and magnified him for his humility in service. He did this to please the Father and to serve others and to save all of us. The humble are those who are likewise dedicated to humbling themselves and exalting the Father. So here are three ways I'd just like to suggest for us all to seek together to grow in humility. A, see God and truly repent. Isaiah 66, verse 2, if you'll turn your eyes over there, it nearly repeats this text, noting that God looks to the humble and God looks to the contrite. And then it adds this all-important phrase that he looks to the one who trembles at my word. It's meditation on the word of God, thinking deeply about the word of God that's going to lead us to a true vision of God. And if we're those who tremble at God's word, then we're also going to be those who confess how far short of God's holy standards we fall. And so this is a, a text that's calling us not only to repent of grievous sin, but also to turn from what we might term our acceptable sins, our sins of pride, and to be crushed by them. All of us suffer from complaining, from bouts of anger, from being consumed with pleasing others with worldly ambition, or maybe the opposite, with laziness, or perhaps we're jealous or envious of those who have secured more than we have. And what we want to do is we want to let the contemplation of the divine majesty expose us and cause it to expel the sin that's in our hearts. B, we want to humble ourselves before God in prayer. Few things will show our pride more than a lack of prayer. And few things will cause us to grow in humility and trust in the Lord more than praying frequently and then experiencing the joy of frequently answered prayer. And this is especially important for those of us who find ourselves crushed by the difficulties and the trials of life. 
Remember that God dwells with the, crust, the, with the crushed. He longs to draw near to you and allow the vision of his everlasting and his mighty transcendence to give life to your heart, to comfort you, to provide you guidance in what to do, and to enliven your hope to his future promises. And then, lastly, see, humble yourself before others by serving them. Humble yourself before others by serving them. So we want to humble ourselves before the Lord. We also want to humble ourselves before others. And this is one of the quickest ways to grow in humility is to serve and to serve in lowly ways. So many of you in this congregation are such a wonderful example of this to me and to the elders. Be like Jonathan Algren, who gladly, Sunday after Sunday, comes early and works hard to make sure that we can all have a great potluck after church. Be like Sidney Law, who you're more likely to find back in the nursery taking care of babies than here in the service. Be like Logan and Laura, who, despite the immensity of their grief, continue to serve faithfully, bringing meals and showing hospitality and making sure that the Lord's Supper is ready every Sunday for us. If we consider the way of the Holy One and we pursue dwelling with the Holy One, then we will also experience the renewal of the Holy One. Look at verse 16. Here Yahweh says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. How can the transcendent and the Holy One dwell with the broken and sinful? Well, the answer is that the Lord will put an end to his contention against Israel. So here's a glimpse into the heart of God. He will judge if he must. But his heart is to forgive and to show mercy to any who will humble themselves. As Psalm 30 verse 5 says, For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is is for a lifetime. Then in verse 17, Yahweh explains his attempts to draw Israel back to himself, to, to draw them back through his discipline of them. Look at the text, verse 17. It says, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. And so here we see the outworking of God's anger and the outworking of God's discipline in Israel's life. And he tells us that Israel committed iniquity. This word iniquity just means to deviate from the norms of God's laws. And we might ask, how did they deviate? How did they go astray? And it talks of their unjust game, this word that summarizes all their rebellion. It's this, these words that describe their greed. And this was greed in all manners. It was a, an unceasing focus to gain advantage for themselves. Really, unjust gain is just simply covetousness, which the Tenth Commandment forbids. It's a, a heart bent on obtaining at all costs. Is this not the DNA of sin? Sin is nothing more than an orientation away from God 
a movement away from his ways, and instead an exalting of oneself and a seeking to establish one's own stability with one's own greedy efforts. This type of work is the epitome of pride. And so we read that as a result of this focus on unjust gain and greed and pride, that God disciplined Israel. And then he says he withdrew his presence from them. And despite this discipline, it tells us they did not heed. They did not listen. Instead, they continued, you could translate this literally, turning back in his heart, almost as if they did the opposite of repenting, turning back to themselves. And then in verse 18, we get another one of these contrasts where Yahweh commits to healing Israel's wayward heart. Look at verse 18. He says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So Yahweh will heal them in the inner man, and he's going to provide them divine guidance through his word, leading them. Then it seems that he will crush their heart. And he will humble their spirit in order to renew it. Notice it says that he will restore comfort. Uh, you, you could translate this literally, I will shalom him. I will peace him. So in other words, God's going to cause them to be of a whole heart before him and cause them to be completely devoted to him. And then verse 19 explains Israel's appropriate response. They are to be those who mourn for their sin. This is just a way of speaking of those who repent and turn from their sins. Another prophet, the prophet Joel in 2 verse 12 says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. And the beauty of this text in Isaiah 57 is that it pictures God giving the repentant heart that he requires. Look at verse 19 again where you have this verb creating the fruit of the lips. And this, this verb creating is barah. And this is a verb that is only ever used of the work of Yahweh. This is the verb used out throughout Genesis 1 in God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And so it's showing us that this soft and repentant heart is granted and created by Yahweh himself. He's going to remove every obstruction. He's going to make the way smooth for his people to return to him. And this isn't just going to be a physical path. It's going to be a path through the heart where his people are made humble and contrite. And then Yahweh's going to grant repentance and praise. There's this phrase, the fruit of the lips. So what will his people say to demonstrate the inward reality of their renewed heart? Well, they're going to praise the Lord. That's going to be the evidence. It's interesting in Hebrews 13, verse 15, it connects these ideas of fruitful lips with praise, perhaps alluding to this text. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, let us then continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips, so there's our language, that acknowledge his name. And so the humble who are enlivened by God will proclaim and they'll praise. God will give peace and God will give healing to anyone who humbles themselves. Does your vision of God motivate you to share the gospel of Jesus freely? 
God calls such obedience beautiful in Isaiah 52, verse 7, which we read in our call to worship. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who talks of the peace that the servant earned when it says in Isaiah 53 that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I want to encourage us all this next Sunday and in two weeks we're going to have our Advent service and uh, Anna has worked hard to make beautiful invites for us to give to our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and our friends. They're in the back and I want to encourage you to grab a couple of these and challenge you to invite several people to our Advent service where we're going to praise the Lord for his work through Jesus and where Matt, after it's going to share the gospel and invite them to believe. Look at verse 19 where we have these words, peace, peace. And this is that Hebrew word again, shalom. And it's twice repeated. And so it's communicating through that twice repeatedness, uh, this superlative kind of peace, a peace that is perfect in quality and it's full and comprehensive in its scope. And it's going to be a peace that's universally offered to all peoples, to those who are far off from the Lord and are greedy for gain. Peace is offered to them. It's offered to you, to those who are near and still rely on their self-righteous deeds. Peace is offered to you. Will you today trust in the one who is the Prince of Peace, Christ Jesus, and turn from your sins and submit your life to him? Let's now look for those who refuse this renewal of the Holy One. They'll face the justice of the Holy One. Verses 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So our passage ends with one last final contrast, and it compares the wicked to a raging sea that cannot be quiet. They are those for whom there is no peace. And when verse 20, it speaks of the, the turbulent sea, it, it, it's speaking of this turbulence that's within the wicked. They're restless and they're unsettled in their unbelief and in their rebellion. And this settled unbelief, it does nothing but toss up mire and dirt, filthy deeds of unrighteousness. And so the metaphor implies that the problem with the wicked is their hearts. Instead of quiet and settled and submissive hearts, their hearts spew anger and resentment against God. And verse 21 explains why. God says, there is no peace for the wicked. God has decreed it so. Louis Zamperini is a World War II veteran. Many of you will be familiar with this story. Louis was captured in the Pacific and thrown into a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Uh, and it was there that there was a general in the camp that they nicknamed the bird, and this bird had a, a, a personal vendetta against Louis. So he would, he would beat him and torment him almost daily. He would starve him. He would work him harder than everyone else, trying to break Louis. And eventually, Louis was released from the, the war camp and released from that trial. But the, the memory of his abuse by this general, it continued to, to torture him for, for months and years later. Initially, Louis chose the path of no peace. He relied on his own strength, and he, he looked to the stupor of alcohol to silence his demons. 
and to try to find some semblance of peace. And yet, he was an angry, sullen man who regularly had night terrors from his suffering. One of these night terrors, uh, he was you know, dreaming of the general beating him, and he, he woke up and he had his hands wrung around his wife's neck. And it was at this moment that Louis realized he needed help. At his lowest of lows, he was crushed, and he was in torment. And so Louis went seeking for God. He attended a Billy Graham crusade. He heard the gospel. And Louis looked to Jesus to save him and to heal him and to guide him. And Jesus changed Louis's life so completely that he actually traveled to go and meet the general, his former captor, and to offer him forgiveness face to face. You see, when Louis bowed to Jesus, he found himself not consumed by anger or vengeance, but he found himself consumed by his vision of God. And it was such a grand vision of God that he wanted all, even his worst enemy, to share in that vision. God has put two paths in this world. The path of no peace, the path of the prideful and the wicked who refuse to submit themselves to the transcendent majesty of the Lord. But God has also put a humble path in this world, a path of peace, a path that can face the crushing perils of persecution and the brokenness of this world, and yet with full peace, knowing that it is God who keeps them in perfect peace, knowing that God will guide them, God will heal them, God will keep them with himself. And this path is strewn with the jagged rocks of sin crushed underneath the foot of the cross. And those on this path find themselves blessed with the most surprising and most majestic company one can imagine. God walks with them, and he dwells with them. Which path will you choose? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this magnificent word from you. We thank you for this text that exalts you in your majesty, in your your transcendence. We ask that you will do in us what this text exemplifies. Give us a clear vision of your greatness in your majesty. Cause us to gladly humble ourselves and to bow our knees before the Lord Jesus and to fully confess in all contrition our sin. We ask that you will forgive us, that you will no longer contend with us, that you will guide us on the path of godliness. Heal us of our pride and grant us peace with you, peace with ourselves, and peace with others. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.